Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. It could have imitated a million life forms on a million planets, could change into any one of them at any time. It needs to be alone and in close proximity with the life form to be absorbed. The chameleon strikes in the dark. So is Blair cracking up or what? With the creed, there is still cellular activity in these burned remains. They're not dead yet. Today, as part of a listener request, we'll be discussing John Carpenter's The Thing. Starring... Kurt Russell. Now how's this motherfucker wake up after thousands of years in the ice? And how can it look like a dog? I don't know how. Because it's different, I see. Because it's from outer space. What do you want from me? Keith David. If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me? Donald Moffat. Reach anybody yet? Reach anybody? We're a thousand miles from nowhere, man, and it's going to get a hell of a lot worse before it gets any better. Well, stick to it, Window. Stick to it. And Wilford Brimley. Watch, Clark. What? I said, watch Clark and watch him close. Do you hear me? Directed by John Carpenter. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. First goddamn week of winter. It's Gally in Glasgow. I was wondering when El Capitan was going to get a chance to use his pop gun. It's Devlin in London. Maybe we're at war with Norway. <laughs> it's Patrick in London. Watch Clark. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, listeners. We are we are doing a listener request. Um, we we got a special email from uh, from a longtime listener named Darren, who uh, who said he really wanted us this Halloween to cover John Carpenter's The Thing uh, from hey, 1982. Darren. So thank you very much, Darren, for the listening. Good choice, request. Darren. Indeed. This is uh, what Darren emailed me. He said, uh, The Thing is easily in my top five favorite films. Uh, I've loved it for years after watching it on TV a number of times. And so I brought it on Laserdisc, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, Steelbooks, The Works. Uh Kurt Russell is one of my favorite actors, and I enjoyed the effects immensely. I first saw the film and thought it was quite funny, especially the scene where they're all tied up in the blood test. I also, I mean, this is this means he's a really big fan. He also didn't mind the prequel. I mean, you could argue. Big yeah, fan of the, the prequel. prequel. Goodbye, Darren. We, we, <laughs> <laughs> where's, the, where's the bottle of JV? I'll just pour it down that email. Um, no, uh, not at all. Uh, so thank you very much, Darren. Uh, we will uh, we'll do our best to talk about the thing. We'll also try our best, listeners, not to refer to a thing whilst talking about the thing, which I don't know how we do this. A pound in the square box every time we say the thing. Uh, the thing is about the thing because that's oh, going to happen. For fuck's sake, right? story yeah. time. I'm going to get fucked, aren't I? You okay. are. You are. You need to find that's something always. else. 
Uh, that's always the thing, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Where's the bell? <laughs> we are cooking on gas. <laughs> the uh, the buzzer for saying the thing is will be Wilfred Brimley going <laughs> ah ah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. This should go. be a whole genre, shouldn't it? Yeah. Brimley oh, reacts yeah. with with <laughs> undisguised disgust. Prepare listeners for two hours of basically groaning. So I hope you don't want yeah. to listen to the car with your, with your wife and your kids. Anyway. <laughs> um. Very powerful image. Wilfred Brimley looming over you. That naked top lip of his. <laughs> no, a mustache and sight. Is he on a horse coming at us with a bow and arrow? Is that what's <laughs> just stuff of nightmares? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Uh, see Hard Target for more uh, Wilford Brimley uh, anecdotes <laughs> and also the rest of this episode. Um, so I think we'll start with um, first experiences with The Thing. That doesn't count. Devlin, I'll start with you because um, I think we we know because this is not our first rodeo with uh, with John Carpenter. Um, we all know you're a big, big Carpenter fan. So So what about this one? When when did you come to the thing? I want to say I saw the thing as a teenager. Um, I couldn't tell you what year. Uh, uh, yeah, I would have been middle teens. It would have been on TV. There was a great period. We've talked about it before, where um, oftentimes you would uh get just like really awesome films just whacked onto BBC Two at like eleven at night on a weekday, and as long as you were talking movie drum, Dev. I don't know if specifically movie Joe, although there would have that would have also probably played this. I would have thought. Was that I feel four? like it's slightly before our time, but I was the cousins' years. Yeah. But there was um, yes. Commode and no, not Commode. Mm. Who was who was uh, Alex Frank? Cox used to Alex run Cox. It. He was right. the original. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What is the the the, the Commode years definitely? But also just sometimes they would just put stuff on late on a BBC two, especially as it got towards kind of autumn, winter, they would, mm. uh, so it would have been, uh, uh, that I probably would have watched it sight unseen and, and been blown away by it. Um, oddly the most memorable viewing I have of it, uh, was with Matt. Yay. Uh, first one on the pod. Yeah. We went to, uh, Cineworld Middlesbrough. Yeah. Matt used to come pick me up when I was living back in, in Herworth. Uh, mm. uh, and if you know, uh, um, the geography of North Yorkshire County Durham border, you'll know that that's actually quite far out of his way. So it's very nice for him to take me all the way to Middlesbrough. I used to do the back roads from Croft and then, yeah, yeah. we could, we could have gone to Teesside Showcase. We saw Watchmen there together and maybe some yes. other stuff too, but we, we yeah. went for the luxury of Cineworld for this re-release. Yeah. I want to say this would have been what, 20, 11-ish? Could be 10, 11. No, it yeah. would have been earlier than that because I would have been in London by then. So maybe it's more like 2008, 2009. Oh, okay. 2007 would have been the 25-year. That You know what? That would that would possibly... Last year of me. uni for me, that maybe. Mm, yeah, maybe a little after that. So, uh, But while we try and wrangle, it was uh, it was somewhere in the late 2000s. So mm. that, weirdly, is, the, is the, the screening that actually sticks around most in my head. That I'd seen it before then, but I felt like that was seeing a different film getting to see it on a big screen in an audience and just how unbearably tense it was. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, Matt, since we were already talking about it, how, how familiar with, with the thing were you before we went to see that? Well, I'll echo that first. That was my favorite viewing with you. Um, it was great on the big screen and th there's a handful of films we've seen together, but I don't know how many of them we'll end up tackling on the show. So it was great that 
this one made it in there. Um, I think I first saw it on DVD. I saw it quite late. I didn't see it as a kid. I would have loved it as a kid, I think. But I was probably, I don't want to say deep into my 20s, but um, it it must have been pre-uni on on DVD. Um, I'm not sure it clicked that much on the first viewing either. I, I do remember showing it to my cousin Marcus on DVD in our living room along with RoboCop and some other ones when he was like far too young. I was just trying to be a, a cool older cousin, I think, and just show him some films that he wouldn't otherwise get to see. Um, and uh, I remember the DVD being excellent. I remember looking at the extras quite a lot and being into filmmaking at the time and really enjoying that slow-paced making of. Gally, you mentioned it before, like the, it mm-hmm. takes about an hour to get going, never mind, you know, anything <laughs> else. But um I think that was ported over from the Laserdisc as well. So it feels quite old fashioned, but I really enjoyed watching that one. And the commentary was excellent too. Um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen it several times over the years, but my, my top viewing was with you, Dev. That's, that's the one. It was like seeing a different film and seeing all the detail. And I think it was a good turnout in the crowd as well. So mm. you did get to feel that, the tension and the paranoia. Um, I'll pass it over. Uh, how about you, Patrick? Mm. I um, I remember. I only think I've watched this once before this week. Wow! And really? I, yeah, I I couldn't recall any other time apart from. I'm pretty sure I was early to mid teens, and it was a film that my I, I recall my dad's enthusiasm for it. It's like oh, you got to watch this. You got to watch it. This. this is going to be awesome. And he was really looking forward to it. And we watched it. And I remember, I remember where I was sat in the house. I remember watching it. My brother was there, and I think it was at a time because I was the first child, and and Dan, my brother, w- was allowed to watch films at a younger age. You know, he's five years younger than me because I'd gone through the system. Um, you know, Disney child and all that. And I wouldn't have been able to watch this at his age, but I think he was. And Dan really responded really well to like gore and like horror. He, I, I don't know, he was quite mature that way and disassociated. He, he, he really rebelled in that kind of filmmaking and the S, um, the SFX and stuff. And <clears throat> I texted my dad the other day and said, do you remember the first time you ever watched it or when I watched it? Do you remember anything? And he read, Oh yes. Around 1986-ish, as the line goes, you cannot be fucking serious. The prequel about the Norwegians is very good too, said father. Because um, I knew he loved this film. And my brother actually replied as well, love that film. And I remember watching it, but I think my main takeaway was definitely the visuals of it, the the gore, the, the practical effects. Well, not at the time, it wasn't like, oh, that practical effect's good. It was more, oh my God, this is insane you know the spider head i remember the the chest opening up and taking the arms that's the image that really stayed with me when i was trying to recall the film and i don't know why i haven't rewatched it um since for any reason i didn't have anything like i don't know the occasion never came up i'm not sure but i bought it on 4k ready for this week uh when we knew we were going to do it and i'm very happy <laughs> with the 4k disc it looks lovely uh, Gally, where first experiences? I think similar to Devlin, um, and I do long for those times. But I think as well because everything's so available now, you could never, you could never go back to a time when seeing something on at eleven fifteen on a school night and making the calculated decision of basically having a horrible long day the next day, but watching something that was a real choice, as opposed to you know 
well, it'll be on rotation tomorrow again. Um, so yeah, I think I caught it on, yeah, it would have been channel four or BBC or one of them on late, late night. And this is absolutely in my wheelhouse, sci-fi ensemble, spam in a can sound similar to aliens. Does it anyone? Um, yeah, it's kind of my thing. Uh, and, I, and, and at the time when I was younger as well, I was not so much drawn to the special effects, the, the, the special makeup, the, the kind of the animatronics of it all. Um, I love watching, you guys know this, um, my picks will, will denote as much as well. I just like watching characters try and work stuff out. And I also yeah. like stories because I really don't like it when, as an audience member, I'm too far ahead of my characters that I'm watching. Um, and well, I think we discussed it in Predator 2 where it kind of like you're, you're there for an hour waiting for characters to catch up and it can be a little bit frustrating. <laughs> I am very much of the opinion that I like to be in the same amount of no as our characters. And then that way I'm in, this, in the situation going, well, God, what would I do? So I really gravitated towards that element. Um, I wasn't like following John Carter at this point. It was just, here's another sci-fi film mm. about an mm-hmm. alien with a bunch of characters trying to work stuff out um, in an isolated environment. So yeah, definitely my stuff. Little humble brag though, listeners. And I say this because I just want to, and I'll never get another chance because I don't think there's another film that will do this in Antarctica. But actually, uh, actually been several times and indeed i worked in antarctica for uh for about six months uh, and i visited palmer station which is the u.s uh, antarctic base i can tell you now i am who i am i think um and i'm <laughs> not the thing is that, is that how you got the bullet hole in your leg yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah! oh no i didn't say it actually um, <laughs> watch gally <laughs> but no i i really like genuinely just an amazing place so if you ever get the opportunity to go there with work or whatever um yeah just incredible um and, and memories that i'll forever keep i might overshare and maybe put some pictures in the show notes or something uh, i remember a picture want. of you put that in the in the blog yeah it's it, it's christmas Penguins. day in my in a pair of shorts and a christmas hat trying to be a hard <laughs> one but it's fucking freezing <laughs> right so before we get into story time, going to do a little bit of um, production history slash a uh, little bit of context for this one. Um, so John Carpenter's The Thing, not the original. Um, however, his intention was to go back to the novella, which is called Who Goes There? That's correct. Who Goes wasn't There? It? From the four, like a classic four, 1940s sci-fi. 1938. Yep. John W. Campbell, who was the uh, uh, editor of uh, one of the earliest science fiction compendium magazines which was so popular in the mid-century oh, the kind cool. of thing that um uh, uh george mcfly was reading you know, the, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that kind of fantastic stories kind of stuff that was cool. uh there's also the like the the loose basis for like alien and body snatchers too apparently they they looked at that when they were developing those mm. films too it's a, a politically incorrect ridley scott 10 little indians story yeah although john carpenter says it in the documentary as well so um, they all say it yeah. don't they? <laughs> they all say it, yeah <laughs> they just find a different way of saying it yeah seven little chipmunks on my <laughs> uncle's <laughs> ranch <laughs> eating lots of sunflowers <laughs> on my uncle's ranch you know that old story time from the child <laughs> the children's song from the sea <laughs> step into my office why <laughs> Because you're fucking fired. (laughs) (laughs) Not seven. seven. (laughs) The the best line in uh, in that that is... Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) uh, 
there's an ADR line where he's like, uh, God, this seat's really itchy. It's like set out of cactus. <laughs> Seven little chipmunks. Anyway, yeah, that's what they need to say for these types. Good lord. Comment to this. So this is a remake of uh, Howard Hawks. The Thing from Another World. Yes. As they said, that um, apparently they had to retitle it because there was a popular novelty song that came out like literally the same summer as the original movie was about to come out. And it was just <laughs> called The Thing. And so people thought, because <laughs> they had to kind of keep it quite mysterious what The Thing is. That's like, you know, the whole point of the selling point of the, the, the commercials and stuff. It's like, are people going to think we've made a film adaptation of this dumb fucking song? <laughs> so, <laughs> in the title sequence of The Thing from Another World, you've got the classic, you know, the letters burning down on screen and it looks mm-hmm. incredible. And then you've just got these fairly shoddy, um, superimposed from another world mm-hmm. underneath it. Yeah, <laughs> and he uh, took that exactly, didn't he? he? He used that exact same. It's not really a font, is it? It's a, I guess it's a font. But yeah, he replicated that perfectly because John Carpenter is a massive fan of it, and and the whole the whole point because he loves Hawks, and um, he he wanted to he got the chance to remake it, but he really went back to the short story, and um, because the the thing from another world is kind of like a Frankenstein guy wandering around, sort of throttling people and bashing them and. He gets struck by lightning and stuff like that. And and he didn't want to do anything with a human. Uh, and he felt like he could do something better with the effects, I think, and make a different picture than, than the one that he enjoyed and not compete with it. We, we've got the thing. Now, one of the things I want... Oh, God, I've just done it. Brimley. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh, how, how, how bored are the listeners going to be of this joke? Oh, yeah. Uh, other trivia. Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel, the um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre gang, tried to get one of these going in the late seventies and it didn't quite materialize. Apparently it was a, an associate producer. I think was it Larry Franco who was hired onto it first. Right. And he, uh, yeah, he said that he was one of the few people that he knew back at USC who was, um, big into sci-fi. Cause I, I think that the, you know, the film school scene in the late sixties was probably kind of slightly more high minded and then mm. was happy to go for genre filmmaking. And it was he and Dan O'Bannon when they were working on dark star that they were expressing their, shared affection for the the kind of the sci-fi tales that this comes from and also christian nidy's film adaptation of it mm-hmm. so, um they uh uh it seemed that it was it had to go through a couple of kind of false starts carpenter was considered but then he had to move on because he was committed to escape from new york mm. um but it ended up that the production delays with the script meant that yeah. um uh, it, it aligned that they could start making it in 82. He said he had mm-hmm. loads of time as well because of those delays. And he said that now everything's truncated so much that you have such a short time to prep things. And mm-hmm. maybe it sort of shows. And, and he's revealingly, he said on one of the documentaries that his first go-to moves when he's directing something are meeting DOPs, uh, directors of photography, and uh, discussing the film with production designers. And I think you can really see that in this one those are the first two things he does and it's all all on screen i think yeah they hired a uh, bill lancaster as the screenwriter mm. um because the both the producer uh, uh well the producer was the guy who brought him in and he said that he was a big fan of his work on the bad news bears which is just such a fascinating <laughs> film to watch walter matthow get pissed off at foul-mouthed baseball kids and think that's the guy <laughs> for my sci-fi horror movie set in the arctic circle but... he was one of the norwegians yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, Bill's going to get um, his own little section uh, 
okay. discussion because I think uh, the screenplay <laughs> is worthy of, of mm. more more discussion. Oh, I thought you meant his grenades are throwing skills. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> we can also uh, pick him up on that. I mean, <laughs> slippy, slippy hands and those gloves. I don't know what, he's, what he was doing. <laughs> um, but just, just again, I wanted to dispel something that was in the documentary and something that's a bit of a kind of a myth. And I wanted to kind of provide context to my rebuttal. So it was released June 25th, 1982. Uh, this is in the US. Uh, this is a different era, listeners, when kind of the US box office is king and the rest of us would have to wait. I'm not going to go through all 10, but I might do. Uh, the Thing came in at number eight. That what week, a year. Which is For the week? For first week release, it was number mm. eight in the US. Now, that's not great, right? Uh, for any... <laughs> yeah. Any any film, um, let alone a you know it's your first studio film, so you've got there's a, some expectations there. Um, now the the contributing factor that is kind of normally mentioned, it's mentioned in the documentary. I don't know if Carpenter actually believes this, but but ET was released two weeks earlier, mm. and wisdom is that you know audiences wanted a friendlier alien and not um, you know this kind of mean mm-hmm. uh, kind of body morphing creature disgust ah ah kind of alien that we get in uh, in the thing um now here's a couple of movies that were released uh so same week blade runner was released that that was number two in the the box office et's one wow et's one blade runner is two so i'm not saying that there's monsters in blade runner but it's hard sci-fi and i would say it's harder to bloody get into than the thing sci-fi mm. and that's number two uh number three anyone want to i mean Come. start yeah not quite yeah. no number five star trek two colon the wrath of Khan. it's, it's uh, an excellent film yeah um, that's number I, five yeah uh, uh, i know conan the barbarian was around this summer as well and was a big hit not in, not in the top 10 though um wow, i'll tell you okay. what i'll tell you what was uh a little um clue here thunderlips is in it thunder oh my god rocky three rocky three is number four wow how about um grease two with rex manning is that (laughs) say no more 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 i've I've gone completely poltergeist is seven uh Uh, here's here's one for you number number 10 this week is bambi so we have got a real thanks for the clue i could have got that <laughs> yeah, well, what do you want me to say? Same as Bambi. Bambi. Yeah, Mother Mother yeah. would have been re-released. The the um Disney back then was was big on re-releasing, yeah. right? They would you know, because the, the home video market was only just taken off and they weren't really committed to the home video market, Disney. They they would kind of hold their stuff back. Was there a Star Wars in there? And we're a year we're a year short of returning Jedi. I don't know I whether that was the same thing as Bambi. Fast times at Richmond High? No, no, I'll give you the other ones. So the other ones are Firefox, Megaforce. Yeah, no, I'm shrugging shoulders <laughs> wow. too. And and Annie. Um so it's oh, a real yeah. it's a real kind of mix mixy okay. blob. But hell of a week. You know, Carpenter imagine, does imagine... say it, Gally. Carpenter has said in one of the documentaries that he believes that that theory. And I'm, uh... I just don't buy that though, uh, d- no. uh, Matt. Only because, you know, you've got I would say really a competitive week. You are fighting for eyeballs. Yeah. Um, you've already got another sci-fi film out that um, I would imagine a trailer for Blade Runner would have been far more impressive to yeah. the sci-fi mm-hmm. 
than than this white background snowy poltergeist you know, nails your horror needs doesn't it yeah so you start to look at it and you think your quadrants if you're thinking about you know horrible mm. marketing terms like quadrant filmmaking they're kind of all being swallowed up and et is also swallowing up all the quadrants kind of movement there's only so many times you can go to i, I think it actually had more to do with the critics but we'll do that a bit yeah. later one one thing that I that I noticed from there's a, a another documentary on the Arrow Disc which uh, is the only one I actually got a chance to watch which is uh, I think it's actually called Who Goes There. That's and the long uh, one. That's the, the the new one on the Arrow Disc, right? Yeah, um, which is a pretty good overview of kind of everything from the inception of the novella all the way up to post release. Um, and they say that uh, because Universal was covering both ET and the Thing. Universal put the trailer for the thing up front in front of ET. Now that to me, they were saying like, "Well, you want to get your trailer in front of the widest possible audience," but that's not exactly targeted trailering. Like, no, no. I do think that there is just a kind of maybe again different time, but such an odd choice to imagine that there would be much overlap in those audiences. I had a question there. What would you have seen if you could pick just one of those films uh, to go and see on a Friday night or something? Wait, hold on. Not, not having seen them before or having watched the trailers. It's 1982. Uh, you've got your moon boots on. Okay. And you're, and you're full of pixie sticks and you're jotting down to the How old are we, Dev? Cinema. Uh, are we let's kids? say we're 15. I think I go ET because of Spielberg. But also Poltergeist is Spielberg. I think I'd go to Poltergeist. Ah, yeah. Maybe at that point, Matt, maybe I'm like, oh, I don't want to watch Spielberg's like horrible melancholic thing. I want to watch his like nasty Poltergeist film. I would probably go Poltergeist. I think that would be the big, the big sell for me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Mr. T is in a film. <laughs> oh actually i mean i if if somebody you know before we knew he was uh one of the worst people on earth i was the big hulk hogan fan so it's possible that he, he had a whole 15 minute section oh, yeah. so, <laughs> patrick will you remind us and the listeners of the plot to the thing first goddamn week of winter the antarctica 1982 Two Norwegians pursue a sled dog across the snow in a helicopter when the passenger accidentally blows himself and the helicopter up and the pilot fires at the dog who's seeking sanctuary at an, at an American research station. The pilot shouts as he accidentally shoots George in the leg, but the Americans cannot understand his cry, Gary shooting the Norwegian dead to end the frantic matter. Windows ain't been able to reach ship for weeks on the radio to report the incident as speculation grows amongst the group of Americans. What happened to the Norwegians? They tell McCready, the helicopter pilot, to get ready and fly out to investigate the Norwegian base while the dog explores the Americans. Upon investigation, McCready and Dr. Copper find the remains of the Norwegians, some videotapes, an apparent ice tomb, and a burnt corpse of a malformed humanoid. They bring it back to the American base, Dr. Blair finding human organs within during the autopsy, while the dog watches on. Clark puts the dog with it where he belongs in the kennel with the other dogs and it soon terrorizes them, metamorphosizing and tries to absorb some of them too. McCready alerts the others and gets Charles with a flamethrower to incinerate the terrifying thing. 
Dr. Blair autopsies the dog thing and deduces that it can perfectly imitate other life forms. Clark had spent the longest time with the dog, and Dr. Copper grows suspicious. But I don't know. Maybe it's not. They watched the videotapes and discover a Norwegian expedition site where they uncovered what could be an alien ship that's been hidden in the ice for thousands of years. The group struggle to comprehend what's going on. As Blair crunches the numbers in his computer, their estimates the thing could simulate all life on Earth in a matter of years. The dog thing wasn't fully killed and absorbs Bennett, but before full assimilation, McCready tortures him and they set to burning the other remains to be sure. Meanwhile, Blair's paranoia drives him to sabotage the helicopter, the radio station, the remaining vehicles, and he kills the remaining dogs. Nobody gets in or out of here. Nobody. They lock up Blair, who warns them, Watch Clark. McCready is wary. Someone here is not what they seem. How can they be sure? They need to find out. Copper suggests a test of their stored blood, but they find that's been sabotaged too. Gary has the only key. Could he be in a simulation? McCready takes charge. The even-tempered choice. Nobody trusts anybody now, and they're all very tired. They find the burnt corpse of Fuchs. Maybe he took his own life before the thing could get to him. They suspect McCready now, who's lost in the storm as Norris has chest pains. McCready forces his way back in, armed with TNT, and Norris suffers an apparent heart attack. They get Copper to do chest compressions and defibrillate him, but Norris's chest transforms into a horrible mouth, biting off Copper's arms, and Norris's head transforms into a kind of spider before McCready torches it all. McCready kills Clark, who's attacked him. He's not fucking around and saw that Norris thing would do anything to survive. So he ties up everyone and takes samples of their blood plunging a hot wire into each sample to find the next thing hidden among them. But Palmer's blood coagulates and he transforms and bites Window's head, McCready torching them both before finding Knowles, Charles and Gary safe. But where is Blair? McCready, Knowles and Gary set to destroying the camp. The thing cannot escape. But now Charles goes missing too. And the generator has gone. Blair appears out of nowhere, consuming Knowles and Gary and transforming into a huge thing, and McCready blows it sky high. Charles returns and sits with McCready in the cold outside. They drink scotch together. How will they make it? Maybe they shouldn't. Apologies to our Norwegian listeners. I didn't realise you were fluent, Patrick. Can you so, tell yeah. I've been practising all morning? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We're in Predator mm. territory. I always forget that there's a shot of the Earth and then the alien spaceship. A wobbly spaceship. It's a bit hokey, isn't it? On, on the making of, they, they changed the ship into a, like a, a spinning laser disc. And the effect on that is almost as good as the one in the film. It's, uh, it's not great, is it? But it makes <laughs> Predator look better. It's a bold star, and I, I love the mm. font, and I love the way that it kind of burns on. Font's amazing. It's so yeah. striking. It's so, it's so memorable. And it's a really bold start when you, when you learn that it's been thousands of years since that as well. Mm. That makes it kind of even more mysterious and interesting. This kind of build and the, the opening credits made me think, is this going to be up there with Jaws and Alien? It was already in my head right at the beginning, because I, I can't remember the trailer, so it's lost a point there. But... You know, you've 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 really got an iconic film on your hands, right right from the start. Dev, the the wide shot when we're on Earth in Antarctica, um, 
it really kind of fucked with my my eyes a bit because you can see the mountains in the background moving mm. against the foreground and there's a slight like uh pan along and it i couldn't figure out what the movement was at first okay. i had to like sit up and go oh right the camera okay it's a movement from the distance is a movement from the foreground on a fulcrum kind of thing. Mm. And it was really effective, that eerie movement in the Antarctica before, you know, we've yeah. seen the spaceship and then now we see a helicopter, which I, I thought was a very neat start to the film. The other thing that I love about this opening is straight into action, straight into the thing yeah. that the... Oh. It's a mystery. Oh. But we're straight into what are, what's going on. We're, mm-hmm. And immediately as an audience member, we are asking questions. I watched this uh, tw- twice leading up to it, and I must be stupid because I'm rooting for the dog every time. I don't shoot the dog. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and but then I remember, oh, of course, you have to shoot the dog. We've got a very, very good-looking dog. We can speak the dog, by the way. One of the best actors. Oh, yeah. Is it as good as the Raccoon Witness, though? That's the question yes. from Wild I think <laughs> if we replace Raccoon Witness with the dog, we get a fuller performance. Um, it is. Shout out to Jed, the dog. Yeah, fantastic. But no, of course you are, because you're kind of like, well, this is a bit overmatched, isn't it? Helicopter sniper man versus dog in snow. Animal in peril, right? That's that's such a a, a primal thing for an audience to to root for. And um, the the goggles that the Norwegian gunman is wearing with that strange like slit across the eyes, it looks kind of it it, it makes him look very threatening and it's, it's very simple isn't it they, they are speaking another language the americans can't understand othering straight away patrick yeah really good setup really really cracking starts to the film and music immediately as well the music is like the heartbeat of this thing it was a bit weird and ironic that he got ennio morricone to to do it because he ended up just using the most john carpenter sounding cue that he got back from him and scrapping a lot of the I, I didn't realize how much of uh, the other cues were actually in it. Like when they go to to visit the burnt Norwegian camp, there's some orchestral stuff there that's really good, and there's some other moments too. But it's really the bomb, bomb, you know that we that we remember, and it sounds like Halloween or or something like that. But um, I don't know if you want to mention Hateful Eight yet, but Tarantino took some of the unused cues and put it put it in that movie. Um, he, Gally, you quoted it in your notes um about uh the paranoia bouncing off the walls i think he was on colbert and he talked about it and uh tarantino said that you feel trapped um when you watch the thing and the paranoia bounces around and the only place for it to go is back into the audience and he obviously felt like that was an appropriate you know because tarantino is strange that like, he doesn't like working with composers he doesn't like giving them the power of uh dictating the emotions of his of his movie so he likes to use existing music and even stuff from other films so he's really in control of it like he's putting songs on a jukebox and uh this was an acceptable way of using uh an, a morricone score because the majority of what he wrote for the thing hadn't been heard i don't think or used the relationship matt as you say between a, a filmmaker and a, a composer is so so important because music really can make a difference you know i remember those uh funny trailer you know the kind of like subverted trailer things where you can change the cues and suddenly oh, like know, the shining is a romantic comedy yeah, yeah you can change the entire now obviously they're there they're meant to be kind of funny but mm-hmm. it does underscore a point which is 
music can make a massive difference to what your brain is perceiving on the screen. Muscle of Jaws is still one of the films that I I need to see. That plays into the dog's performance too, Gally. Uh, Like um, if you play different music over those images of the dog reacting, I Mm. I pretentiously mentioned the Kuleshov effect in uh, uh, in the chat, which is the the Soviet montage technique of Mm. you've got a chap reacting to something uh and then de- depending what you juxtapose it with depending on the image that follows it it gives the original shot its meaning so mm. there's a guy what is it in the clip it's like he's looking at uh uh he's looking at is it like he's looking at a child he's looking at a bowl of soup he's looking at uh, oh that's right he looks at the bowling the bowl of soup and he appears to be hungry he looks at the child yeah. in a coffin and he appears to be mournful and there's also yeah. a famous hitchcock clip where he he sort of uh they, they shot a, a close-up of hitchcock looking a bit a bit pervy and then he smiles <laughs> and uh he's like looking at a family in a in a park and he's uh you know he looks like a kindly old man and then they use a shot of a woman in a bikini instead and he looks like an old perv it's like the same the same way and he discusses mm-hmm. it at, at, at in depth on there and the same thing here with the dog i think that's what gives it its power the editing and the music, but but having said that, the dog is amazing on its own. If you, mm. even if you break it apart, there is one particular um, shot where it all kind of coalesces. And as you say, mm. if you remove the music, and when I say music, it's literally two notes. Uh, it's when McCready and the doc are heading towards the Norwegian camp in the first five minutes. I'm sure. And I think Norris, uh, not Norris, Knowles says, oh, McCready's going up. He's with Palmer. And then there's a tracking shot and the dog is under the pool table. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. as the, the dog, it looks like it's just chilling out. But then the notes, dun, dun, dun. that's mm-hmm. it. That's all you need. And yeah. it's brilliant. And it, it, it's, it's, it's the camera movement as well because it's kind of slow and menacing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's where does it end up? And the image before and the image after. It's all of those things. You get you get the PAV stuff from the dog as well. I think a couple of scenes later. Oh, Patrick, help me out there because I'm still confused by one shot. Um, th- there's a shot that's a POV. Uh, it appears to be human eye level. It's very early on. It's just before the dog goes into. Is it? I think it's Norris's room. I think Norris is on that that silhouette, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. It looks it looks like Norris. Well, to me. they 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 substituted Dick Warlock in because they said that anyone else their their um their silhouette was too noticeable. So they literally put the the stunt coordinator in there uh, in order to av- in order to avoid it being too obvious. I think that 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 seemingly human POV comes down to yeah kind of a dog's eye level. Uh, but, and then the next shot, we see the dog. Come down the hallway. The door. Yeah, yeah. So off camera, and what I liked is how this harked back to the opening of Halloween. Is there's something really uncomfortable and uh, otherworldly about it? Because we don't know what that dog's capable of at the minute, Matt. This is in a simulation, and it's taking mm. the form of a dog. But what if it? But for me, it was like, what if that dog was on its hind legs exploring and working around in a true Ooh. form or a thing? And then oh, I'm going to see someone else now. I'm going to go back into dog form. But yeah. in it, kind of adds asks all those questions yeah and it's it's like it's that horror and it's very effective though it's very unnerving that pov because it's a store it's the stalker pov and it's that horror trope of right this this dog is you know the the, let a fox into the hen house you know Mm. that um that sequence of the the dog this kind of walking into the room with the with the shadow Mm. um i'd kind of 
I'd uh, there was something about the sound design there that was the first time I'd noticed um, how incredibly they because I was I was watching it with headphones on because mm. um, I really wanted to sort of sink into it and that sequence of so this is after Mac and and Doc go off to the to the other camp and that's when the dog is underneath the pool table and then we cut to Jerry telling Knowles to turn the music down. And he, wa- and he walked mm. over to the boombox. I got shot swipes, today. Swipes his hand <laughs> near it, but then just kind of skates off. And that's when we start getting just a few simple shots of the place. But every time mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. camera cuts, the the way that the Stevie Wonder song refracts off the various surfaces mm. situates you in the in mm. in how far you're moving away from the kitchen. But it it links it all together. But like every time it gets further away from the kitchen. And the song gets more and more echoey. Of course, it sounds like yeah. more kind of distant and threatening. And that's the long corridor shot where yeah. you just see so slowly the dog's snout and just nudge the door to one side mm-hmm. and how tentatively he walks down that corridor. Nalls, will you turn that crap down? I'm trying to get some sleep. I was shot today. There is we want to reduce. It's when the dog goes into one room, that pauses and then looks at the other and then goes into the silhouette room. So good. There's a, a great scene later as well where um, uh, there's there's some commotion outside. I can't remember which, which scene it is specifically. It's definitely after Mac and, and the dog come back. Maybe it's uh, when they come back from the Norwegian camp with all the samples and all the rest of the crew go outside and you have all the dogs at the window. Outside. You hear the, yep. And everything mutes, and it's just a, the dark, and he's just staring at them through the window, and it cuts back to it two or three times, and the sound design goes from like this kind of outdoor blustery helicopter chaos to just like this really eerie distance. Oh, it's sound. the uh, let's play the low rumbling over Quentin Tarantino's performance in From Dusk Till Dawn, so that people find him scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the, the other thing they said was that the dog didn't look at the camera or at the dolly because that's a mo- that's a tracking shot, and the dog stops like patrick said looks in one room seem seemingly pauses and then continues down the hallway it's like he's not the dog isn't the worst actor in this film i'm not going to slag anyone off but he's yeah it's windows we all know (laughs) (laughs) one thing that normally a lot of these kind of ensemble films will get criticized for is well i don't know all the names i don't know you know who's who what in this film i think carmen's is quite a, a kind of like humble a humble bloke but he seems to kind of play down his his kind of mm. work in mm. the in the documentary he talks about it being kind of a mistake that they're all dressed similarly and he didn't do a good enough job to differentiate i mm. completely disagree because it's the point is that i don't i don't really know who these people are but what i do know is i know that their dynamics between the group like there's enough mm. scenes yeah. where through action you know who kind of aligns with who and you just 
just by observing. And I just think it's just incredible direction to kind of get these actors to build these relationships, but not stated up front. Like we don't know McCready's past. We don't know any of these guys past, but we do know that they've all, they're all there for different reasons. Some are there for a job. Some are there because they're kind of loner weirdos like Clark and, and others have got like a, a past. And others are there for the scientific endeavor, but there are, you can see who trusts who and who's got the power within the group. You know, Blair seems to be a very important man in the group, but no one states it up front that Blair is the go-to scientist guy. Does that make sense? Mm. Like I've seen films where yeah. they try their best to make sure that everyone's got it's, a it, And it's visual storytelling with Gary. Gary has the gun. He's in charge. Yeah. And he's got it round his waist in an old-timey Wild yeah. West gunslinger uh, um, <laughs> holster with the, you know, with the bullets kind of slotted into it. And mm-hmm. you know, he's a sheriff he's a, in town, aging gunslinger, and he's gonna have his, he's gonna have to give up his his authority. Just before we do Carpenter, um, there's a little bit we could slot in. Uh, I've got a meet me halfway. If you're interested in what people are, are doing when we first meet them, uh, you just mentioned Gaddy, so we should start with him, uh, the captain. The captain that we actually we we talked just before recording about the brilliant establishing shot of that rec room and the blocking of that where everyone's laid out very beautifully and clearly, apart from Gary, who's behind somebody's kind of hidden. So I, I included the next bit of Gary as his uh, meet me halfway, which is him breaking the window mm-hmm. and sort of kind of irrationally for a while. And then you think you know, he's, he's actually got a cold efficiency. And he's the the leader. He's the one who's armed. Um, so that's what I included for his. McCready's was really interesting because when we first meet him, he's playing chess against a, a cheating computer. It's not really cheating. It's just winning and uh, drinking whiskey. He calls it a bitch and he calls it baby as well, which may link into some of the misogyny claims uh, that, that the film got. Um, he's losing at chess. He's losing the big game. And uh, everyone loses in this film. And he takes the thing with him at the end, just like he takes the computer with him. He wrecks the computer, he wrecks it and burns it and destroys it. But however, he's still a loser. So like, even if you kill your enemy and, and beat your opponent, you still lose in this film. It's, uh... It was one of my favorite kind of, because in, in, in isolation, it just seems like it's a way of introducing Kurt and he's kind of doing a badass thing, which is, well, you know, if you can't, but actually it speaks to the character and it, you know, like you say, it completely echoes the ending, which is, you know, if the if the game's fixed, I'll just blow everything up. Yeah. <laughs> Destructive it. fatalism. That, yeah. As far as the misogyny claims that he did originally have a blow up doll uh, and there's some stills of him with the blow up doll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they wisely cut it out, I think. Yeah, they, that, but, that's wise. Uh, Childs is fixing the snow cap thing whatever it's called it's called like mm-hmm. a, a snow dozer or something um which is kind kind of interesting but not re- it wasn't giving too much away uh dr copper is playing ping pong with wilford brimley um wilford brimley trivia by the way he likes to think about collecting his laundry during uh some of his shots which links into some of um <laughs> Mickey Rourke's uh, style yeah. acting from uh, Rumblefish. A very, a very prosaic Mickey Rourke. Uh, <laughs> I brought my, brought my talisman today. <laughs> I was thinking about getting my drawers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Callie's favorite windows is playing guitar. Uh, 
Fuchs is on the sofa reading a magazine. This isn't giving away too much at all. Uh, Palmer is kind of checking his tape deck. He's leaning over a pinball machine. And then in the next scene, he's smoking weed, which is a bit more revealing. Yeah, And handing it to Childs. And handing it to Charles. And I yeah. think the first time we see mm. Knowles is on his roller skates, but I'm, I might be wrong. He maybe he comes he outside. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about Bennings. Can you, anyone remember what Bennings is doing? I think he's in the rec room. Uh, maybe oh. outside with Charles. Wait, I mean, he gets shot, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I think the, the only one that's really revealing is McCready. I think the rest are kind of uh, yeah, yeah. very ambiguous. Well, I think it's, it's given you a... Giving you the numbers, right? Giving you the numbers of those uh, those chipmunks in the tree. So I, I but, but I think, but I think what what happens is when we're developing and we're going through this story of paranoia and, and suspicion. Again, I think a, a common criticism that I see as well, you know, you, ha, you can't be a, a valued character because I can't even remember their name. But in this film, it's completely like, who cares? Like I know some of their names because I've seen this film many, many different times. Um, mm. but like the only names that really stand out are like Fuchs, um, mm. Norris gets said a bit, Child, maybe but, Blair. Blair gets, yeah, Blair. Don't Blair. Blair. I, I think all the names are pretty, but, but it's not, but it's not important. Well, maybe because I only saw it this week, because I remember that being, I had not seen the film since we went to the cinema to see it, so it had been a long time. Um, and I remembered this being kind of like a kind of like a sort of tourism almost where people say that oh it's a bunch of interchangeable bearded dudes they all look the same mm. it's kind of like and the uh, in the early days of this film that was probably a criticism and then later that became kind of like a, a benefit to it which was you know they didn't needlessly go in on um differentiating but i don't mm. know whether it's because i only watched it a week ago but i found it so easy to navigate the characters this no, I time did. around yeah. Yeah. yeah no issues um, whatsoever that you know, I I I could I could recall them all. The probably the weirdly the one that I didn't remember, almost I didn't even remember being in it is um, uh, Fuchs, in the same way that I always forget yeah. Poncho from. Uh, <laughs> is it because his, his like death scene? His death scene yeah. is kind of uneventful. Like we 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 assume yeah. he burned himself before the thing could get to him, but we Fuchs don't see. Does it. have my favorite moment in the film though when they're. When they um, get Blair, who, who's destroying the radio room, and they corner him, Fuchs just falls out of shot like this. He goes, <laughs> He just falls off of Blair. It's a bizarre movement, but it's very funny. I think char on... charging someone with a fold-up table is really funny as well. <laughs> yeah. really like that. Matt, on your Meet Me Halfway, like for the majority of characters, when they group together and come out to the Norwegians, and if we go into a bit of... Um, bit of carpenter's direction here it may this is one of my problems with the film at the very early on was a weird there's a guy shooting at a dog and he shoots one of the members their reactions all felt very subdued and disassociated and like i it, it was there was weird reactions to that that i thought well, hold on, wouldn't they be kicking off? Wouldn't they be shouting back? They're very mm. silent in their reaction. I, I couldn't, it, that felt a little odd to me in their, in their shock, reactions. To, in As shock, in, yeah. I, I was thinking, are they in shock? Just put all of your ensemble uh, into a, a situation that is threatening to their lives and see how they react. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's really clever to do that at the beginning. But he doesn't give too much away. Even McCready, he's not a coward, but he's diving into the snow he's uh 
he, but he's quite switched on, isn't he? He's, uh, yeah, yeah. You, I think you get the McCready switched on really early on, and mm. especially when his reaction to just hearing the dogs because he didn't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. He, Because of what he saw when he went to the Norwegian camp, he's like the first one to go. There's definitely going to be an issue here. Fire alarm. Mm -hmm. Gally, you were talking about um, Carpenter had been quite an an unassuming sort of chap. And he's almost like not making mistakes, but he's unconsciously making really good decisions. And there's a bit in the making of where I think it's there's a bit where Dean Cundy, they're all covered up because it's snowing. I think it's Cundy. And he recommends that they lay this track down and John Carpenter's got a cup of coffee and he looks old even then, like in 1982, he's got like a big warm winter coat and gloves and he can see that the camera's on him and Cundy recommends this move and he, Carpenter just accepts it immediately. He seems to be really comfortable uh, deferring certain things to his heads of department. And I think mm. that could be something that makes him a better director than than many and on the commentary he's got no clue where the sounds came from kurt russell goes what what was that sound he goes i, I have no idea he, he doesn't know what was used in the foley he just defers it to the sound guys <laughs> and i have a mm. theory on him that he's just this no-nonsense guy and he's logical and he's level-headed and he knows what he doesn't want that's like the old robert altman thing if you know what you don't yeah. want that's half the battle and i don't think he knows a ton about lenses and lighting he's not cameron he's not scott he's not kubrick but he will rely on those heads of department because they're his uh, safety net. And there's just one other thing that I've talked about Tarantino too much already, but he, when he went to the Sundance lab, I know you love Gil- uh, Gilliam, Dev. Uh, Terry Gilliam gave him some of the best advice he said he's ever been given, which was um, Quentin was said, oh, I'm scared. I don't know about lenses. I don't know about lighting. I don't know what I'm going to do on, on the set for, for what would have been Reservoir Dogs. And Gilliam said, you don't need to know um, all of those things. You don't need to be proficient in them. You need to hire the people who are proficient in those things, and then you need to trust them to do their jobs. And all you need to do is tell them and articulate to them what you want. You don't have to know everything. Mm. So, um, yeah, that reminded me of that for some reason. Yeah, I can see that. With with You get the impression that as not just that, but also that um, Carpenter will trust very good actors yeah. to act well. I, I think that um, the, the stoutness of the screenplay as well, especially in this case, gives, this is, you know, I would imagine that if you were an actor, especially, this is roles for kind of, you know, fully kind of, not older, but mm. like grown men, a group of grown men getting to interact in an extraordinary circumstance. So you get to play like, stoicism and paranoia and wig outs and stuff and i just imagine that this would just be honest like fun like as an exercise for for actors who who care about the way that they interact with each other this must just be extraordinary and the fact that they got to um hole up together they they were completely isolated as actors as well as as characters for a lot of the the shooting they were out in uh british columbia up in the middle of nowhere living in a this like end of the universe sort of town this little one one horse town in 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 the snow i think that um uh, i can't imagine him giving like line readings or firing like 60 takes at people i think there's a sense of like no we're all here to to, to do our jobs and mm. i think that that reads in the in the 
the ease of the interactions between the actors. It's like this best it's... idea wins philosophy. Like you hear about it with some filmmakers. Like it doesn't matter where the idea comes from. You use the best idea and you try not to have an ego about, about, you know, running the show. I feel like mm. he's, he fits in that category. I really like, like that. Plus he's got Dean Cundy with him. So right. Yeah. He's in, he's in yeah. kind of safe hands. Yeah. yeah. And he's got, and he's got Kurt Russell. He, he, he ends up becoming kind of John Carpenter's blue collar muse. Right. Because that's yeah. kind of Carmenter's thing. I think if you look at all of his films, um, bar a couple, um, he, he he tends to gravitate towards these protagonists that are kind of blue collar, see mm. the world, see the world for what it is, and point out the world's issues. Because I would imagine that at this point, prior to um, Escape from New York, especially, because that's the first time he did this kind of you know sullen loner outsider. What did he say in in New York? He's he said he was doing Clint Eastwood in Big Trouble in Little China. He was doing John Wayne. Yeah, and in this one, he's I guess he's more himself in a in a way. The fact that he could see that in him, based on his previous material, where the earlier stuff is far more like uh, fucking Captain Jack or whatever, like he's, Captain um... <laughs> Captain Ron. Captain Run, like he's a um, he's a, a comedy actor. Oh, Overboard! I love Overboard. That's a yeah, guilty pleasure. Overboard. Yeah, that feels like more in certainly more in keeping with the stuff he was doing in the seventies. So the fact that John Carpenter would have teased out this, you know, this unimpeachable icon of like um, a kind of flawed, gritty masculinity, mm. it, he must have seen something in him that no one else did, and I think that that's fascinating. The Carpenter's got a kind of a dark sense of humor. This film's got those moments as well. There's some wonderful moments of levity. A slight tangent. The head here, coming but... into the spider is fun. well. The head can it's the head turning into the spider, but um, maybe it's because I'm just a, a kind of simple mind. But when the head is hiding under the table and you can hear the <laughs> noise it's making, <laughs> I mean, how else? How else can you be other than laugh? I think it's a secret comedy that there's so many bits in it. Like I, the tied to this fucking couch, that bit obviously yeah. makes everyone laugh yeah. in the cinema. I remember people laughing there. There's a bit where, um, yeah, Blair saying he wants to come back inside is hilarious. But this is what Darren must have been going on about, right? He said he found it quite funny. Best frame, single frame in the film is Wilford Brimley sat there in a white puffer jacket and a eating from span, eating his span, eating his span. And a noose behind him. It's so funny. I, I literally, I don't think Devlin describes it like frame within a frame. It's this, legendary. I'm all better now. I'm all better now. Come like, inside. He's like a child. And he's like, I'm all better. I promise you, I'm all good. There's a bit where Palmer says, oh, um, yeah, thanks for thinking about it, though. That's a, a funny little yeah. gag there. And the bit mm -hmm. that really makes me laugh, maybe I'm sick, is, is when Palmer starts shaking. It's revealed in the blood oh, test wow. that he's the thing. And then next to him, Keith David's going crazy trying to get get away. I and the blood that jumps out of the petri dish. Wah! There's a bit there where obviously it's a phony hand that the the blood jumps mm. out of, but instead of just using the phony hand in the jump scare, they use the phony hand in the shot previous and the exact same yes. framing. So when you rewatch the film, you can't because you you think oh it might be Gary is it Gary or is it is it um. But it's McCready, and then it's like McCready, and then it's the phony hand, and then it cuts away, and then it's the phony hand again. So on a rewatch, you're not quite sure when it's coming out, and it really because it would plays be well. it would be super obvious if there's only one shot where this this completely stationary yeah, fiberglass yeah. hand is at the bottom yeah, of the frame. Yeah. What? But um, what? Just in terms of like secret comedy stuff, mm. I don't know whether it's being a sick puppy, but 
the opening of the chest to rip off Doc Copper's arms is, yeah. is like disgusting, shocking, and hilarious at the same time. The like, reaction is so of... funny. <laughs> it's <laughs> like it's not it's not funny in the moment, but the timing of it, the ridiculousness of it, is yeah. like. Isn't the 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 Venus flytrap windows bit funny too? Where there's just like a. It's like a floppy body just going going around. That's Evil Dead Two stuff, right, Matt? Yeah, when, yeah. It is. when he's upside down and the because I, I was getting lots of Raimi feels as well from from all of that. It is. It's it's mm. the mixture of that horror, gore, That's, and comedy. Yeah. Uh, the Benning's monster with, with the hands. Yeah. Yeah. That could be the best horror image in it, Patrick. I think I agree. Yeah. The use of the magenta flares there as well is like, that's one of the best uses of, mm. of that. Just the, what a smart choice to have, you know, those blue lights strung up around the camp. Yeah. And then the red of the flares and the white of the snow. And uh, Kurt Russell said it was like filming inside a ping pong ball. So it's like a testament to Cundy, I think. I assume from what I've seen that he's he's really is the director of photography here, uh, and he's he's given it th those three key colours throughout. Yeah, absolutely. Can I go for one more moment of? Um, I don't know why, but I always find it funny when um, Palmer runs out in his kind of fireman suit because he's all lit up. McCready just chucks a piece of dynamite and it blows up and it's on a wide and for some reason it just looks really funny to me. How about his, his yeah. commando role for no reason later oh, on? The commando role's great. I love yeah. the commando role. So yeah, there are definitely moments of, of, of I think, purposeful levity. You know, yeah. the classic mm. line of, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Mm. It's there to undercut the fact that the effect is like half working, like it sort of crawls, yeah. but it very much does look like... Again, it's a bit Evil Dead. It looks. I feel like it's played for it... comedy there, because there's, there's yeah. a shot where they, there's another slow turn. Windows does a slow turn. Mm. McCready, they do like it, a... it goes. It goes tickling <laughs> off behind McCready. He's <laughs> looking in like yeah. absolute because it's fact is like everything that's happened so far. Everything from Doc Copper's arms getting ripped off to the thing like it's absurd. Out yeah. and, and it, but it's like it's been disgusting and it's been dramatic and there's been a fire and then it's like it's the little sting. It's like. But you know, like you get the 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 great jokes of the one where it's like there's a sting after the punchline, mm. and that's this the button on the button, thing. just yeah. just like tickling away behind him. Everyone turns around, and mm. it's uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's not like um, it's not deflating what's come before it. It's letting the audience like mm. release. You know, yeah. you either get the yeah. release from a from a a jolt, or you get a release from a laugh. And I didn't really find the release in the dog kennel though. That um no, the dogs that's... the dogs being kind of like up against the wall, gory, mm. like strung up by the tentacles of the thing. Mm. And then even uh you said Raimi there, Gally, there's um it, when um uh Childs kind of hesitates and the thing opens up and it's a kind of like a like a uh, for for listeners, like a Stranger Thing kind of face that mm. opens up like a flower and comes, and there's a little POV push into Childs yeah. before he makes his decision to um. To, to, it's, it's really horrifying. I, I love that moment. It's, it says a lot about Childs too. Like you, he is kind of the second after mm. McCready as far as he's going to act, but he pauses just long enough yeah. for it to be dramatic. And the design of that flower 
Stranger yeah. Things thing that pops out. It's actually got dogs' teeth. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's unreal. Mm, it's just yeah. great. That and that is, I think, where Carpenter knows the difference. I think, you know, b- between the goofy aspect of the human nature and the, it, we said at the beginning, at the beginning you see the dog and you empathise with the dog. Something's being chased. You don't know why. And then the horror of the dogs being mauled like that and terrified. It, I think that's a pacing thing. Like he, he didn't want it to be silly too soon uh, and l- later on the levity s- is sort of creeps in a bit it's going to be the first reveal of your monster yeah you don't want that monster to you don't want people pointing how, and laughing at it how about that yeah. one that the stan winston one where it opens up yeah. and, the, and the head falls out and the, the skull comes, comes out. out yeah oh, i bet that's wow. great in 4k because i've never seen the skull falling out until someone pointed it out and never even saw mm. it it's amazing you mentioned alien earlier galley one of my favorite effects in this film is when blair appears at the end like ash in alien but he grabs uh gary by the face and his fingers start going into the face and that is fucking horrible Did that remind you of uh it's been done lots of times but it's kind of like the faculty because they stole so much from it that the 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 red kind of vine core cords and whips of the yeah yeah yeah. creature that's all the faculty and then the blood test scene is obviously the the scene. scene yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yes, which is yeah. the modern version of it. Yeah, I think I don't know. Mine might have to be the initial ripping open of the dog's head because maybe maybe it's just because of the like because the first special effect in that scene is how fucking good those dogs are, especially Jed, the main dog. How tentatively he walks into the kennel mm-hmm. and then sits when the line you start to look menacing. at the other dogs and they they're kind of. They already seem like they're laying down on their side and they seem kind of nervous and you just get these like, it's it's uh, rhythmic, you know, yeah. a shot, a shot. And then the dogs start to react and that's when you hear that like rattlesnake sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that scene escalates to such an extraordinary place, but fucking hell, if I, when we talk about like, what must that have looked like with no, there is no uh, uh, paradigm for this, for an audience going into a film that a dog's head is going to rip open into four pieces. We mentioned Jed as well. Just quick one whilst we're on that, um, you know, the the dog being introduced, the alpha into the pack. Mm. The other dogs acting as well. Like one of yeah. them, I, I assume, one obviously, biting in distress, the fence. Bites it. Yeah, what a great effect that is, like biting the cage. And then the other one that's panicking as it's being spat out some sort of... Oh, uh, that's oh, just goo. a hose oh, of slime on it, poor thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an incredible sequence, but enough, I think, for an audience member that's not ready to just like switch the film off. Because obviously yeah, you've, got, yeah, like, yeah. you've got things yeah. there that you don't want to see. Two that I guess are kind of uh, snuck in there because they're more just kind of like um, like a mold, like a build. Yeah. Uh, one, the the dead guy in the Norwegian camp with the frozen shard Ooh. of blood. I always forget about that. Wrist. I'm surprised every time I see that. It poses one of the questions that we ask us of a, of the other characters is, do you know when you turn him? We we kind of get a sense mm. that maybe Fuchs did. Maybe this guy yeah. cut because he cuts his throat and his wrist. Yeah. So if you wanted to kill himself, yeah, surely gosh, you yeah. would. You, but or does he? Is he just about to turn, and he's like, "I don't want to turn, and I'm going to make sure by cutting my yeah. wrist and my throat." It asks, it poses those questions, doesn't it? Like literally, as they say, like what happened here? I'm not going to lay claim to that being the first time that's ever happened, but certainly that is that set a paradigm for films like this later on, which is a lot of like horror sci-fi crossovers post mid 80s 
ripped a lot off from alien but i think that idea of like walking into something that's been devastated well, i guess alien has the the, yeah. the space the, jockey the, the but space, it's not the same jockey, it's still alien when, isn't it? when you've in got like a, something like an event horizon or a sunshine or you know when it's like what the fuck was going on here with these people event horizon specifically being like you know mm. that. yeah but the other icarus is sunshine does feel like the norwegian base mm. Uh, mm. exploration yeah and it just it has that kind of you know that that's the uh and that's the great thing about the coming into the story while the story has already played out once before mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, there's like a cyclical nature to it. Like, I wanted to, when, when we talk about what you think happens at the end, maybe we can get into it more, but I feel like there's a bit of a, it's, um, indicating that there's a cycle to this and the same thing is kind of going to, to keep happening. Conclusion for the US station is the same as Norwegian's. It just mm. ended slightly differently, but it's the yeah. same result, which is everyone's dead. Before we get off uh, effects, there's uh, some Rob Bottin stuff. He said that he was asked uh, to make the... I think he was on The Fog first with Carpenter. Yes. And, and he, yes, and he yeah, met yeah, Dean yeah. Cundy on that one too. Uh, and that that's really the trifecta, I think, of, that really makes this one work. I, I guess with Kurt as well, obviously. But um, he was asked to make The Creature. And uh, John Carpenter said, uh, in reference to all these effect stuff that we're discussing, he said that in terms of like taking credit it's 50 percent rob botin 50 percent dean cundy because cundy managed to light it so you can see it but not too much that you can tell it's an effect which sounds obvious but it's really not like he hides the rubber by lighting it dimly and carefully and thoughtfully and that collaboration works really well because it's like a, a balancing act and uh, rob botin was he, he wanted even less light it, it, so so that's another thing that separates it from like the cg it looks good in the 4k matt you you know you don't see the seams really you know it's, and, and, like, and it does the thing that you want right matt the the way that botine's colored these um these kind of contraptions the blue hue the blues and the purples Let it makes the you boy it makes watch it. <laughs> <laughs> plums. <laughs> plums two for one sale <laughs> The farmer's market. <laughs> I had to open the window. It was hot. Sweaty. <laughs> One aspect of it is that it makes you, as an audience member, lean in. It look and and the way that I yeah the way that in my head I rationalize it. And if anyone were to slag it off and go, oh god, that yeah, it looks dead. Obviously, like a you know special makeup effect. Yes, but it is supposed to be alien. Um, mm. so the whole, whole point is it's imitation until it's fully been formed. So I, I, you know, I get it and maybe giving it a bit of a pass, but it's, I'd rather see that and have to lean in and try and look for the kind of the seams of Rob Bottin and Stan mm. Winston's work than, ah, so that's been digitally rendered. Is there another thing with CG these days where you feel like a, a CG, Patrick will know much more about this, and this is just speculation, but when when a team is brought in to do the effects on a movie, they're paid presumably by shot or by however many you're going to do and they want their work to be seen and the, there's a, a modesty to what Rob Bottin was, was doing and a collaboration and I feel like it's not the same as someone at a at a PC, Rob Bottin was like working for so long on this. They put him in a hospital at the end because he was just exhausted. And and you, you don't really see that. And maybe it's good that you don't see that in in general practice. But uh, yeah, I don't know what you what you think. It's hard to speculate on that because 
1982, different time of making things look. I mean, and look at, uh, I don't know, who they want to be seen. Shouldn't the best, like, effects not be seen and not known? And, like, no wonder that Kundi was kind of, like, the seminal DOP of the 90s VFX films that were really affecting... Uh, affecting Jurassic and, Park, and, yeah. Yeah. Seamless. Yeah. But, um, and he... He did Back to the Future, you know. Not he did Roger Rabbit, you know, and he, he was kind of a VFX master and, and visuals, and he really understood how to, as you said, either hide things and and compose everything that 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 um, really makes it a believable uh, uh, environment that we're watching. Gally, do do you agree? I do, I do, which makes me um, seem like a bad man because I'm about to just say one I'm of the things bad. that I, <laughs> I, have a, I don't know what, I'm full of the references today. Or, um, what I would say is, and this is this is a bit like trying to compare two great things, uh, and so maybe it's unfair. Is there a food analogy coming next? <laughs> no, not quite, not quite. Um, um, see, I'll just see if you agree with me. One aspect or the one effect that I don't think, um, it's not that it doesn't work, I just don't think it's as memorable, is uh, the kind of the Blair kind of amalgamation of all the creatures at the end. And it actually speaks to what I, one aspect of the, the film that I'm, it's not a ding, it's that when I think about John Carpenter's best work, and when I say best work, his most kind of long-lasting work, iconic work, the ending of Halloween, the battle, Laurie Strode versus Mike Myers, memorable, in closet, with Hanger. Da, 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 da. The one thing I would say is that the the ending, the action piece ending for the for the thing, not the ending, we'll get to that um in a in a second. But the you know The Children of the Corn rumble under the ground. The, yeah, mm-hmm. all it's it, I mean, again, it's all it's all good, but I would say that it is it's the thing that I always forget in the film it's just not right. as iconic and as memorable and i don't know whether because that. there are other iconic moments in this the blood test for example the mm. the creature designs the the initial dog burst stuff is all there yeah. maybe it's just because there's so many it's not the big action ending between mccready and the creature that that the film has kind of been leading up to i suppose that's all but a it has a commando role a <laughs> roll onto a mattress because you can actually see it little i bet you can in 4k as well Best use of a mattress since color of night <laughs> but but b i i do like in story times that this thing has resorted to whatever means it has to survive which he talks mm. about with the blood and he knows mm. that blood will survive it's not just tissue as he says a human bleeds I like that idea. However, I, I I know what you mean. Is it underwhelming because we've seen Terminator Two when the uh, the T one thousand changes into all the things that it's previously <laughs> maybe become? And- Even would it have been more horrifying that it was Blair and it mm. recognised to be Blair and that taking over of human nature as, and the as Americans to, like, worry that they yeah, but that mm. you know like the, the American has been succumbed to whatever foreign thing this is and that kind of statement again it's a probably not the right comparison but no one really remembers the cockroach in men in black they remember <laughs> vincent d'onofre in, in an egg suit <laughs> i think galley's absolutely right but the thing that saves it for me is that it, it's not the end of the film and that's really not what the film is yeah. about just him yeah. versus a creature it's not predator 
It's about the paranoia. Mm-hmm. And that's why mm-hmm. it must end with him and Childs. And that's infinitely more interesting than just a climactic battle. Let's talk about this paranoia because it, one, leads us on to a, a mini rant as well. But we'll get to the mini rant in a second, listeners. Uh, namely, uh, people need to stop having film theories that displayed as fact and, and definitive. But that is the thing that I love about this film is the scripting means that there are just dead ends and empty corridors and red herrings galore. Um, I absolutely adore the fact that basically anyone could have turned at any time. You don't even know mm. if characters even know that they're the thing that doesn't count. Mm. Um, mm. And that it's basically a folly to try and watch the film and go, aha, well, what I will do is I'll watch this frame by frame and then try and explain to somebody on a YouTube video the thing explained and label it solved i solved it that's the thing that gets me oh no but agreed right so like clark is like the most obvious red herring and that's supposed to be kind of a moment of oh wow you you really did get clark wrong and also quite dark because it makes mccready the murderer as child says and you've got your protagonist that's killed an innocent guy he was going to stab him with a scalpel but and he's also holding the entire camp uh hostage with a armful of <laughs> dynamite yeah he's like i'll fucking kill myself and every single one of you <laughs> it's an amazing protagonist oh, oh could i could i inject something there he I, I feel like he's like an unlikely not really an unlikely hero but it's kind of i almost said this has been imposed upon me but that would have led to another um office <laughs> There's a thing where, like, um, I heard someone say once that politicians shouldn't be, people who want to be politicians shouldn't be allowed to be politicians. He's mm. a reluctant hero, Matt. Yeah, the people who who just have the right morals and the the the, the right skill set, we should be. They don't want to be the politicians, but we have to get, we have to force them, we have to get them in because we need them. And it's the ones, the career politicians, the one who want to be leaders that we need to kick out. The the old sheriff hanging up his spurs and literally turning over his six gun. Oh, the Western tropes. Yeah. Just a fantastic, you know, it, it's just, it's dudes in a corridor. One guy's freaking the fuck out. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He does know that he wants a shotgun for it, though. Mm. And then they just, um, it's, <laughs> they're handing it to um, Norris. And Norris first? doesn't want it. Norris, Norris, first. Oh, well, Norris it's, immediately it's, wants nothing to do with it. Well, in the yeah. in the documentary, Devs, um, the actor, you all know him more from Dante's Peak. Um, uh-huh. He didn't listen to Pierce. Uh, yeah, he he said that he was trying he was trying to play that like maybe that was a little b- he'd been turned and that was a little bit of Norris saying he didn't trust I'm himself not up for it, but yeah. also that we've seen him have chest pains, so it works on multiple yeah, levels. Like, like yeah. I'm not up for it because it's different. It's a different thing as well. Solved. It's, 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 solved it. Solved it. <laughs> solved the thing. The way it's 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 uh it makes its way to uh to Childs, and then that's when McCready's like, nah, not him. Yeah, I'll do it. I don't know about copper, but I give you my word, I did not go near that blood. I guess you'll all feel a little easier if somebody else was in charge. Norris, I can't see anybody objecting to you. I'm sorry, fellas, but I'm not up to it. I'll take it. Hell, you will. You should be somebody a little more even-tempered, child. 
I got the impression that that was like there's there's definitely something to be said for like um history that characters bring to the screen that we don't get to see it because it happened mm. beforehand. There was obviously not to say that uh, uh Charles and McCready would be somehow nemeses or whatever, but no. it was it makes it very apparent that they but were that, not fans. Of I, I think that links into later because the, the fact that it's those two that are left. There's a moment there where we'll get into it because we haven't done it yet, but there's a bit where McCready laughs. And uh, there's a theory out there. I don't know if you saw oh, this in your let's research. Oh, Gally, but I'm going to do uh, it. Is that a basement behind you? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> in, in the YouTube basement this week. There's, <laughs> because McCready is blowing shit up with his JB bottles that, are, that don't have whiskey and they have kerosene, I think the Americans call it. Thanks to, thanks to Home Alone 2. I know that. Or Home Alone 1. <laughs> and um, oh, it's two with a rope. And smell uh, the rope. <laughs> this rope smells like kerosene. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> suck frick, kid. <laughs> Cue oh, the God. skeleton electrocution. Uh, best, best comedy scene of all time. Yeah, this Christmas. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. Oh, well, maybe, maybe um, this Christmas. The um, anyway, these bottles are apparently filled with with gasoline, kerosene, explosive, you know, uh, flammable liquid. So, and he's using them to blow up the the thing. And so, at the end, when he hands the whiskey bottle to Childs, there's a theory which I don't subscribe to, but that, that, that it's a test. If if he drinks it and he's still the thing, and and he's still himself, he he'll go spit it out and he'll he'll realize. But if he's the thing, he won't be able to realize that he's in fact drinking a flammable liquid. That's a theory that's circulating. But there's a bit where McCready's about to drink out of the bottle before before Childs walks over to him, and it appears that the bottle's open. Anyway, this this goes on and on, but there's um, also a nice moment very early on with the dog start um, the dog scene, and uh, I can't remember who it is. It goes, Charles, get the flamethrower. McCready wants you to bring it, and he, you know that McCready trusts him to be the flamethrower guy, and like yeah. he he knows what he can do. And oh shit, what, what I was going to say is when he laughs, I think he's laughing because it's the, the two of them in that situation. It's a fucked up yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's laughing because oh, it's me and this guy are left. Yeah, yeah. That's why. That's how I read it. Yeah, yeah. and and mm. I I think listen, if if fans of, of films, uh, any films, want to want to have these theories, no no problem whatsoever. We we hypothesize all the time. It's part of the the show. Christ, we talk two hours about all sorts of different things, and we hypothesize about intent, about what meanings there might be, etc. But I think my biggest gripe is when these these folk uh, present it as definitive. And there's one in particular. I'll not name names, but um, because uh he's got uh, like a psychology a level or something <laughs> that it, somehow that makes him uh some kind of like weird vessel for filmic uh, interpretation and it winds me up something <laughs> rotten because i watched some of his video on the thing and his he is discounting how films get made and he is also yeah. watching it as if literally time is passing as the film as mm. as it's been presented so we're ignoring the fact that an edit means that time has passed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're just gonna go mm-hmm. with well he did it then and then it and then the yeah. next shot he's here well yes because the next shot might be five years in the future i, I guess you know everyone's very much entitled to read anything the way that they want to, me back. but i also i i i agree that i feel like the um 
it's it's one thing to let your mind wander and get engrossed in something that's much wider than itself because that's the entire point of of any kind of art is to engage with it imaginatively and to kind of get involved in it get moved by it and of course you're going to start to think about other things but yeah when when there is ascribing like this really binary meaning to what it is that people are putting on screen it it just kind of it baffles me that people think that everything can possibly be planned when that doesn't account for just like the dumb luck of what happened on the day you had a scheduling conflict the weather wasn't holding up somebody Mm -hmm. had a good idea on set that just came out of nowhere that was spontaneous these are all the things that are the building blocks of, of of meaning and i can't imagine that i would particularly want to watch something that has been fussed over to such an extent that every single line it sucks the joy out of it, it? movement yeah. has been choreographed this isn't a whodunit right yeah it's not a colombo like in a <laughs> colombo <laughs> yeah, so i want to know who's who's where and who and if if mm. you get an unsatisfying answer to a murder mystery then that's because they've not given you the tools to actually be able to play junior detective and yeah. that's uh and those re- those are infuriating to watch, but this is like uh, I'm sure the the Bill Lancaster and and Carpenter and, and you know knew what they were doing. There's a whole thing about the jackets and the jackets moving around. It's probably just a continuity error for all we know, but uh, we don't know what's mm. going on. There's a whole one on the keys about who got to the keys. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I see someone like making these big videos about the mystery of the keys, for example, it just tells me that Carpenter achieved his goal because inflaming the speculation and the debate and and like fueling the fan theory is the job of a director. And then just shut up about it. Just do a David Lynch. Don't say anything. His great quote was, when you finish a movie, they want you to talk about it. And Mm. the movie is the talking, he says. Uh He says like, you know. He does that. He shakes his hands a lot, doesn't he? But personally, every time I try and have a theory about anything in this, I run into roadblocks because I think there's there's all these branches. And actually, it speaks as well to that that blood test and the uh, proposed meaning of it all or intent at the time, which was, what does it all well, mean, it was, uh, you know, excuse me, where are you, Basil? What does it all mean? Well, it's AIDS. <laughs> is it AIDS or is it just, no, it's this thing that you <laughs> don't know because yeah. uh, i watching it this watching it now um you know post kind of covid19 pandemic again it kind of it elicits all of those feelings of kind of suspicion and mm-hmm. someone's coughing over there might have, yeah at that yeah. point mm-hmm. it was like well one what are you doing in the office and two you've got covid <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing <laughs> and the thing generates that and i think we had a we had a discussion about it on the fly didn't we about how yeah. that was like mm-hmm. well it was about AIDS. Like, no, I think it was about AIDS. disease, like disease as a, as a broader yeah. mm. uh, kind of concept. So, yeah. And this is, you know, this is as much to do with uh, uh, if you want to get into it as like, it's you would hate to track it as a one-to-one metaphor, but it's as much about that kind of, this is the 80s resurrection of 50s Cold War Red Scare paranoia to yeah. an extent, because this all came up, um, the the Who Goes There documentary mentioned, and I think me and Gally, I'd, I'd mentioned this to you a couple of days ago, that, I think probably Philip Kaufman's invasion of the body snatchers was as important for this film getting made the way it does than, than alien largely because, you know, you've got the replacement, you've got alien replacement, perfect replacements of human beings, but also you've got the, uh, the shocking conclusion, which is that Donald Sutherland has been been integrated. That means Mm. that anyone, including your star, uh, can, uh, can, you know, that it's nobody's safe nobody's mm. safe from this and that's like 
I mean, if you're talking about horror films and what you really want to do with a horror film is get people thinking as opposed to having had a thought, right? Like that's yeah. like Siskel thought the same thing. That we'll, we'll do it when we get to it, but he, you've, you've dinged Siskel there. But I, I put forward a case that the film's less enjoyable the more you pick it apart. And if you watch mm. it with that in mind, like you're trying, you get into this kind of dreamy, drifty paranoia. So I'd, I'd say that logical minds may not enjoy the thing as much as people who just appreciate yeah. the, the vibes picks, as we sometimes say. It's like mm-hmm. a sensory experience. And yeah. and I love the fact that the film ends with such a kind of nihilistic, downbeat vibe. But the music too, Gally, the music from uh, exactly uh, when we begin the film, the music comes back again, which to me suggests a cycle. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say I've solved anything because I haven't, but it's this idea that one of them could be the thing and that if they, uh, they're not rescued, because there was an ending shot where the, where Mac gets rescued and he goes into a hospital and, and they test him again. I think you said it before though, that we're reliving what happened at the Norwegian base. Mm-hmm. And now, like, if they get frozen and they're staying and then the next people find them. Yeah. That, I, I yeah. thought the same. And that the music and clues be- us into the fact that, that that could just keep happening. And it's been thousands of years. So, you know, even yeah. if it's only got so far as to making it one one base over. It wants to sleep now. Doesn't he say that at one point? It wants to, to go to the ice. Well, again, another thing that I do like is that, that Blair has been busy uh, building a ship. In, uh, I forgot all about that. You know, what, what was the thing that, so as the thing, he's trying to get off the planet or as Blair? The way I look at it is that um, this is a companion piece with E.T. It's just that he's the mean one who wants to go home and E.T.'s the nice one. Yeah. Matt, I've just put my roller skates on. I am some <laughs> some dirty cretin has left their filthy drawers <laughs> in, in the bloody washing basket. <laughs> uh, and so I need, to, I need to find out who they are. Uh, I think I know who they are because they're... they're one of them's very big and one of them's very thin. I wonder who they might be. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go down, uh, down the hallway past uh, <laughs> a lovely uh, dog that we've just uh, adopted, uh, and and past uh, Blair, who uh, it will kill everyone. Um, he wants to come back inside there. I, 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 I'm all better now. Um, <laughs> and now I, all wow. I want to know is what did the critic think of the thing in 1982? Mm-hmm. I've got a feeling it weren't that good. I'm going to start with Pauline Kale. Um, she said they seem to be trying to outdo the monster from Ridley Scott's Alien, uh, the one who could take any form. And at one horrifying point erupted from John Hurt's chest, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in its own putting the squeeze on the audience terms, Alien was effective. This picture isn't. Except for an early episode with a husky trying to escape the hunters shooting at it from a plane. So she must have switched off in the first what, few, few minutes. It, it <laughs> appears to be a film of limited imagination with unlimited horror effects. A new landmark in gore. It features oozing jellied masses sorry, messes of blood and entrails and assorted parts of the people and serpents and animals that the mutating thing devours. And it's grimly serious. She obviously didn't detect the secret comedy that we got. Carpenter seems indifferent to whether we can tell the characters apart. He apparently just wants us to watch the apocalyptic devastation. And then if if you want to go to the uh, the torn long johns of uh, Cisco and Ebert, <laughs> Uh, America's dopiest critical duo, uh, the a slightly more even tempered and and measured 
dare I say, almost fair, Siskel said uh, it has repellent special effects. Uh, the Cold War mentality, the suspicion of strangers, which isn't the worst take in the world, I didn't think. No. Uh, we mentioned the McCarthy yeah, yeah. and all that. Okay, so oh, Siskel watched it then, at least. Yeah, yeah. He did say monsters about three times, which pleased me uh, did momentarily. Did he say the thing? <laughs> yeah, he, he said uh, that there was a terrific blood test. Um he mm-hmm. said uh, he wished it were less ugly than it uh, than it was, um, because in terms, <laughs> yeah, in in terms of the storytelling and suspense and the subtext of suspicion of one's fellow man, and the element of something rotten, he said <laughs> it was just funny. Um, he said it's a really well made movie, and at regular intervals, it, it does gross you out, um, and a lot of the people who will see it will be made sick by it which i think is really really unfair um, that's going to put a huge number of people off mm, isn't yeah, it? yeah it's un- it's unfair um and then an irrational eber i thought this week with an axe to grind um came in he, he said he was appalled by the monsters and he gave it two and a half stars <laughs> um ebert said that siskel's review was an understatement he called it a bath bag movie and uh, the most nauseating thing he's ever seen on a movie. It's not a video nasty, is it? Is they were going through their kind of they were they were really rallying against anything that was not. They, yeah. they had letters they prior to the review, which I think built them up a bit. Like that, I think they were okay. trying to be a bit sensationalistic. They had letters from people saying, "This is this is a gross movie. It's a sickening mm-hmm. movie." Um, he called it a geek show. This is Ebert. Um, a gross-out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. You know, he argued that Carpenter would rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of his characters. That leads to another problem: plausibility. He said that uh, that the thing, like you know, when, when he said like what would really happen in Home Alone, well, he he did that again here. So one of the things that I found quite hurtful, and I, I would have been bothered by it at the time, is that he didn't think that the kids watching it or the young people watching it that went to see a monster movie would understand it on any kind of allegorical level. And he said oh, that right. the people, you know, the, the people who are seeing this are just going to see a monster. They're not going to see anything else. I found that condescending. That feels yeah. very much like the, the, the modern day trope of making up a guy to get mad at. He's made up an imaginary yeah. viewer that he thinks is too thick to get this film. Yes. And, and funny enough, Dev, that feels like an actual theme of the film that the, of, of like making up this this foreign enemy and being yeah. scared of it on the surface that wow so maybe it was effective on him after maybe. All. Yeah. but uh, i've got just to wrap it up um another very unfair review that i couldn't actually find but uh john carpenter quotes it uh he was called a pornographer of violence which i think mm. would put people off too yeah, uh, he would, said yeah. that he said i lost a lot of jobs because of the thing carpenter told empire in 2017 it says um the reaction was extremely tough to take my career would have been very different had it been financially successful and then it was fire starter and it all fell through so I, I felt a bit sorry for him yeah even if it was just viable that's the thing it's like what a, that is some of the more aggressive like though they are going after him personally yeah, as yeah. if yeah. he is a bad person for making this film right it shows, and it shows the kind of power of the critic and giving a, a, a almost like a moral angle to if you participate in this as yes. a viewer, there's something wrong mm-hmm. with you as well. I think like, that's, that, a... that's more guilty than E.T. 
as, yeah. as far as there's, what went on here, I think. Yeah, there's, there's, it's such a, an unfair criticism, but it also speaks to um, how the Hollywood system or the studio system, these people that kind of hire and fire, they don't actually watch any of these films. So they would have yeah. just been going off reputation alone. And, and cause if you watch the thing, you could then go, oh, they had a fair point, or no, nah, I think mm. it was a bit harsh. We'll yeah. give you another chat. Were they, but, were they watching the same film? The, um, it seemed that this was during the, the Sid Sheinberg regime at Universal as well, and he had quite a... Um, he didn't always have the best uh, uh, relationships with the more strong-headed filmmakers. This is around the era that, a couple of years after this, is when Brazil was getting cut to shreds because he didn't understand that either. And um, I, d- I don't think Sheinberg would be the kind of studio head who would go back and, and actually say, no, I see... I see the qualities of this film. I don't think it was the right era for somebody to be able to, you needed someone in authority to come out and say, you've all taken weird aspects of this. There is, there is an actual solid piece of work here and you're, you're, you're missing the point. Pop quiz, hot shot. Well, a reminder of the scores because it's pretty tight up there. Matt has seven. Dev has seven. Galley has five. They snuck up there like a, a thing in an American base research <laughs> um darren i hope you play along at home and enjoy this let's hear your buzzer devlin you gotta be fucking kidding <laughs> uh matt your buzzer please mac i'm not a prisoner <laughs> galley what's your buzzer please i don't want to stay out here anymore i want to come back inside <laughs> <laughs> good stuff good buzzers okay question one question one is what is the name of the base? You gotta be fucking kidding. I'm afraid that was Devlin first. Palmer? No. Incorrect. That's, guy. That's the one I... I've actually visited. You, you, you <laughs> had that boomer? Oh, yeah. That's, what, <laughs> I, I... That's where Gally went and shot penguins. Um, De- Matt, I heard your buzzer go second, so I'll go over to you. Well, I have a t-shirt from the lovely Last Exit to Nowhere, and it says Outpost 51 on it. Which is incorrect. Oh! Oh, man! Gally? Outpost 31. 31 is correct. Oh, Matt, I'm sorry you said 51. It I was 31. That's fair. That's fair. There is a sign that actually says it's also called National Science Institute Station 4, but when they're talking on the radio, they can refer to it as Outpost 31. Uh, well done, Gally, with the point there. <clears throat> so question two, this is going to be a bit easier. Let's uh, hear the buzzer first, because I think you're all going to try this one. What brand of scotch is McCready? I don't want to stay out here anymore. I want to come back inside. <laughs> All three buzzers there, but our fearless leader, McCready, M- McGalley, was first. What's your answer? He's on JB. What, are we going JB single malt? I mean, it's, Christ, what are we talking? It's J and B. It's J and B. Oh, come Ooh. on. <laughs> Do you know what the full name of the Scotch is? Yaz, Yazoo, what's your cut off? <laughs> <laughs> That was a real quiz. That was a real quiz. That was a real quiz. Are all these questions going to be about the thing, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've got one. I've got one on the Norwegians. Listen, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to defer them. I did not say the end. I am going to be controversial here, and I'm going to give Galley half a point 
and I'm going to give Dev half a point. Ooh. Just to oh, be, just to be controversial. That could be the decider at the end of this. All well, to yeah. play for on the last question. Yeah. That's what I've gone for. It's just Arini and Brooks, uh, rare Scotch. It's, it's a full title, Jane B. Question three. How many hours does Blair learn with its total assimilation? You gotta be fucking kidding. I think it's 27,000. Or 17,000. Go with your first answer because it was correct. 27,000 was correct. Very good. So that's a tie break. We have now one and a half each, Galley and Dev, which leads us on to our bonus question. How many killings? 11. I always go low, so I'll go one extra. I'll go 12. Devlin? Nine? Yeah. Of course, I'm much higher than you all lose. I included the dog, the first dog as well, Jed. Oh, but, the dog. So with that dog, it would be 16. Without, it'd be 15. 15? Yeah. Gee, many cricket. How many? Dog, 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 dog. Oh. Norwegian, Norwegian. Yeah. Dog, then yeah. you've got... Uh, you um, count the dead Norwegian at the other camp. Three Norwegians. Well, no, because he wasn't a killing. It was found dead. So then you've got Clark, Copper, Knowles, Palmer, Figs, Gary, Windows, and what else am I missing here? George. Oh, wait. Did Knowles die? We didn't see him die. Yeah, we didn't see Knowles die. So 14 then. Yeah. You were all still fucking wrong. We're all wrong anyway. (laughs) Well played, guys. Thanks for playing. I hope... um, Uh, Good quiz. I I imagine Darren would have won that had he been here. Right. We will do our final thoughts and recommendations. I'll start with you, Patrick, as you'd seemingly only seen the thing uh, twice. So, yeah. What are your final thoughts? And do you recommend it to our listeners? Yeah, I do. I recommend it to our listeners. I um it was one of my dad's favorites when I was growing up. I remember I remember how excited he was to to show it to us. Uh I think my mum enjoyed it, I can't remember. But my brother still likes it today and I think with good reason. Um I it was kinda hard listening to those to Critics Corner today because I did largely disagree with them all, which was uh, it was almost hurtful to to hear it viewed that way. Um, cause that's not the response I had at all. I didn't find it nasty. I didn't find it, uh, um, uh, gory for the sake of gory at all. I, I thought it was a really well put together, uh, science fiction film, horror film. I really felt the tension and the paranoia. I think that was, that was really well achieved by Carpenter, um, throughout the, the blood test scenes. Fantastic. Um, I, I really like Cat Russell. I think he's, I think he's great. I think he fucking looks amazing as, as well. What, a, what a, a horribly handsome chap he was in the eighties. So I'm sure we were like, you know, movie star. I think um, I, it, it looks, it, but it looks good. It really looks good. And I, you know, I'm a sucker for the puppetry and the SFX and all, all, all the um, all the, the 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 monster effects in the film because that they really work for me. Um, I liked uh I think the pacing's really good. I like the story. I I it really worked for me. That's it's hard. I'm trying to defend against critics that I can't defend against because I wonder what they watched. Um because I think I don't think it was any of those things really. Um like Kundi, you're in safe hands. Like I said, it looks good, but um I thought it was a, like a really well made film. An excellent example of filmmaking. I we, we could have talked a lot longer about the look of it and the camera moves because the way scenes were uh, went from scene to scene 
it had a very nice flow uh, from a storytelling point of view and things horrified me in it and got under my skin things in that darkly sick comedy really worked and I actually think the film's kind of fun at the same time it's not fun and it's serious and there was a really nice balance of that and the payoff at the end uh really worked for me as well I think I think it's a really terrific film and I think Devlin is a big fan we may have struggled to keep maintain our sandwiches today but Devlin I I imagine it's a strong recommend from you as well it is uh, I don't feel like there's much uh, to add because I think your summary was uh, was spot on in terms of just like the craftsmanship involved. And it's just the only thought I had after watching it again for the first time in quite some time was that like, it's just a fucking masterpiece. There are some <laughs> films that you just finish watching them and it's like, I don't really, there's there's not much else to say other than just, just be uh, uh, awed by something that, um, you know, from from such kind of tactile kind of solid piece of filmmaking it's just uh it's exemplary i guess uh, a question that i would like to ask i guess to everyone for the remainder of our summaries is would you consider it and would you watch it at halloween do you put it up in the halloween spooky season or do you feel that it's best watched at a different time of year because um uh, matt and i will be coming back in a couple of weeks with a little bit of a halloween special and uh i don't know whether um it hadn't really ever occurred to me to watch this around halloween um you introduced me to this idea of uh, it's a horror film but is it a halloween film and i've really mm. taken it to heart and uh i've actually made a best of hall rewind letterbox list of all the things that i feel are halloween appropriate and this isn't mm. in there the exorcist isn't in there texas chainsaw massacre didn't make the cut you know so yeah. i i would would say uh galley and patrick go first on this one because i'm i've been introduced into the ways of dev already he's kind of you've knocked me for six <laughs> what do you think galley uh, i would say it it's not one that i would have normally gravitated towards around this this time of year um but but that's because i think i could probably watch this any time of the year i think i'm with you there galley i also think as well because it's um largely takes place in the day <laughs> And then it's, it's, we only go into night uh, as it really starts to escalate. Carpenter's not relying on your normal staples of horror. And I also don't, I, I, I guess I didn't, maybe I didn't say it enough in the main text, but um, I don't get scared by the thing. And I never have been. I've never been scared by any of the, the aspects uh, of the film, the effects or anything. Disturbed, disgusted, yeah. um, uh, kind of, you know, revolted but in a positive way kind of like a Ooh. you grabbed your bath but, bag but in a good way yeah but <laughs> never no i'm never scared but what i am is like wholly like engaged in the suspicion the paranoia mm. that's not scared to me that's that's kind of like we're we're dealing with really quite human and relative well you said that on the exorcist too galley you said the same yeah thing. yeah I, I again i am never scared by it, but my god am i fascinated and i look what i also is i love spending time there which is kind of ironic because our main <laughs> characters clearly don't want to be there or they mm. do but they understand that there's isolation and blah 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 so yeah no um i wouldn't but then would i class alien no no mm. it's an all year rounder for me oh, the one i was on the fence with was the fly is that halloween the or fly not? i think has a tragic romantic mm. horror element to it that i think would make it appropriate for the season mm. 
Yeah, I think. Yeah, there's a there's a gothic kind of romance to it, a doomed mm-hmm. gothic romance, as as fucked up and disgusting and and grim as it is. And uh, not to say that this is inappropriate for a Halloween movie, because there there is something you know. Yeah, yeah. The isolation, the eeriness, the the the, the coldness of it. But, I, I suppose um, just on association as well, like Carpenter. I kind of mm. do think Carpenter is associated with the Halloween season, and not maybe not just because of Halloween, but I don't know whether that makes sense to you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something haunting about some of his other work, and yeah. there is aspects of that here. But I think that it has been kind of channeled into a different aspect, which is this. It, it's more of like this extremely brutal paranoid science fiction eeriness yeah um but it's it is uh i mean he obviously thought it was a halloween movie because he put it on halloween night in the movie halloween yeah. the original film Gosh. on the telly for Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe it's the sci-fi of it that removes it just as much and also dev the it's a the howard hawks one is a monster movie as in, it's a, it's a yeah. classic monster movie. This is not a classic monster movie, which is why all the stuff that Roger Ebert was saying was was kind of nonsense. And I'm sure, I'm sure, as it's grown, uh, as it grew, uh, an audience, uh, an appreciation. I'm sure he went back and penciled a different review for a new book uh, back, you know, in the nineties. Uh, I gotta say, I tried to look. I couldn't see. I know Ebert he did stayed a lot with of, the bath um, bag, didn't he? Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> he obviously never felt strongly enough to go back and 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 because he was always a a, a a a critic who would go back and reassess when he felt that he had judged something harshly and from a different perspective in his life. And he was quite open about it. And he would always describe his reasoning. And yeah, I couldn't see anything in any of his kind of retroactive do overs. So he clearly just never really jived mm. with it. I changed my star review on Letterbox the other day for something, and I felt like Roger but. <laughs> this is what Roger would do. Eat a few more spam fritters and you'll you'll get there, mate. Really hard to make a movie the way you want to make it, as we've talked about when Costner gets his hands on the cutting room key and he locks you out. Um, like John Carpenter makes the movie he wants to make and he labels it John Carpenter's the thing and he knows the value of that. And I, I really admire that. Um I don't want to overstate it, but you could regard it as a perfect movie. We've talked about Alien and Jaws, and I think the thing belongs in the same breath as that structurally and like propulsively. I don't think it's quite up there with Alien personally. Um, not quite. But no, um, no, I agree. I agree, Matt. I do agree with that. It it um it has these kind of chapters, and it's a bit episodic. Uh, Patrick's favorite sort of fades to black. That I kind of like as well. Uh, <laughs> I like the structure of it, and um. There's an old-fashioned style to it, and I think that comes from Carpenter's influences. He really goes way back to the Hawks stuff. He's not really that influenced by what's going on uh, in contemporary cinema, I don't think. Um, I think uh, it's probably a more fun watch than Alien, perhaps. Um, I do have more of a, a laugh with this one. More of a laugh. Uh, <laughs> it's... You're more of a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I feel like differently each time I see them, but today I'll I'll say alien is a slightly superior film but i have more fun watching the thing i think and and both of them are masterworks and arguably the director's best films and uh patrick sometimes asks uh what the young people might that would we recommend it to the young people so i'm going to try and bring that back a bit um i think they'll find it a bit hokey in in parts there's the stop motion tentacles there's albert whitlock's mat shots and uh torn curtain was the other film by the way that i forgot 
but um the opening spaceship is well hokey yeah and uh they might look at that and, and have a laugh you know have a bit of a giggle at it but um you know i love that stuff looking back on it but i'm i was born in 82 so i'm you know i don't really care about that that stuff born in the 30s <laughs> more honest <laughs> i i i like to give kids more respect than than ebert did though and give them more credit because i think they there'll be lots of this this film that they'll love the bit with wilford brimley asking to come back inside is hilarious i do think it's a secret comedy and uh you know, this is what happens when you give money and creative freedom to odd nihilistic weirdos and freaks. And I, I love that. And, mm. you know, uh, it's a very nihilistic film. It's like, w what can you do when faced with the horrors of life except smoke weed and drink whiskey and be paranoid? It's maybe the best mm. film about paranoia ever. And uh, I, thank you again. It's an excellent listener request. And I've, this has been one of my favorite chats. I think it's... Uh, it's been great chatting the thing with you. Uh, where can our listeners find the thing, then, team? In America, our American friends can get it on AMC, uh, which is available through Apple TV and uh, Amazon Prime, and another one. And Peacock is the new one. You can stream it there. Mm. Uh, NBC Universal's Peacock. Yeah, right. Uh, if you're in the UK. It's rent or buy in the usual places, and if you're in Korea, you can't you can't get anything currently. So I would, I mean, it's a bit of a uh, you have to really make a decision here. But I think Arrow wins uh, in terms of the Blu-ray only. Patrick, I'm sure will recommend the 4K, but the extras yeah, aren't, they're not quite as good. So you might have to double dip. You could get the Arrow Blu-ray, and you could double dip with a with a 4K. The, the um, arrow comes with more extras. Is that? It is does. That it yeah, it's got lots right. of lots of extra stuff. I like the making of uh, documentary. What I watched. I thought it was your your four K Patrick has my two favorite extras. The um, the making of which we mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, it's got that that really long making of. Uh, it's got that. It's like a really slow burn to it. Yeah. And uh, like John Carpenter smoking cigarettes all the way through it, looking like a corpse. And then yeah. it also has. Uh, the audio commentary, which is one of my favorite of, of right. all time. Um, just a couple of highlights from that is Kurt Russell laughing at everything that's supposed to be scary. Um, <laughs> there's a bit where Kurt goes, uh, look at this guy to the, uh, when the Bennings monster is all topless and tentacled in that chair. And, uh, <laughs> the, the, there was also a story about a prank where they pretended to burn Kurt with a flamethrower and they, ca he came in with a bandaged face and, uh, they tried to prank Carpenter and, tell him that they burned uh burned him <laughs> by accident burn him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh the, the classic bit where brimley goes loco and he's, he's thinking about um collecting his laundry although i don't think it was that scene i think it was a different <laughs> scene where he was thinking about his laundry but yeah it's a, it's a brilliant disc <laughs> that, was, that was when he was in the in the shack and he was like i want to come back in now i want to get my laundry yeah yeah <laughs> i'm feeling okay probably, now there's a quieter moment the laundry I think. should be dry <laughs> Yeah. I'm all better now. Uh, and there's also a Scream Factory or a Shout Select or whatever it is. One of them, they've done a rival one, which is almost as almost the same as the Arrow one. But I think Arrow is slightly more reliable as a as a company, personally. Good old Fantastic. Arrow. Fantastic. Yeah. Good. Devlin, maybe some Thing merchandise coming out from, from this here chat. But, so Let's, why don't you uh, tell uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can uh, pick up our incredible uh, incredible merchandise. I head across to rewindmoviecast.com 
that's the website. Um, don't know whether we'll have a um, uh, a blog up for this one because me and Matt are currently right in the mire on a, uh, a Halloween special, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but we have all the links there to our shop. That's devlindosdrawing.tmail.com. You can also check the um, uh, the links in the notes below this episode or wherever you happen to be listening. You can go to the Tmail store. Uh, I do have a directed by John Carpenter series of shirts and sweatshirts in the Albertus font. There Yay! Uh, and also a Halloween 3 Season of the Witch hoodie, which I really oh, yeah. like. Um, so, uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe there'll be something from the thing. But, um, uh, yeah, there's always a bunch of merch available. Excellent. Uh, listeners, if you like what we do, then please like, share, subscribe, spread the gospel team, pen as a wee review. That's all we need. I must say, a lot of you are doing that, which is fantastic, because our, our Spotify school, which seems to be the one that now counts, has gone up and has gone up quite quite nicely over the last couple of weeks. So thank you very much. Please keep doing that uh, and spreading the gospel. Give us a second series, just shits. Exactly. It will give us a, well, I think we're on se- uh, six seasons, <laughs> but it will give us a seventh, which is great. Um, but yes, no, we really appreciate it and we appreciate your support. Uh, and keep buying those Jet t-shirts because, my God, do they keep getting sold. It's fantastic. <laughs> Although I, I do feel like, what Devlin, maybe we should make like a lightning one. Who was another popular? Wolf was it just Jet? Panther, yeah. <laughs> nightshade. Mm. This is the deadly nightshade. <laughs> the deadly nightshade with the move. That leaves us to say our goodbyes. But before I do, I just want to say thank you very much, Darren, once again, for sending in your listener request and giving us your reasons. We do hope that we've done it justice. We'll say goodbyes and shall we, team? We shall indeed. Thanks very much, Darren. And thanks, thanks Darren. Lads. Yeah, nice. Great recommendation. Happy Spooktober. I don't know how, because it's different than us, see? Because it's from outer space. What do you want from me? It's Gally <laughs> in Glasgow, signing out. Why don't we just wait here for a little while, see what happens. It's Devon in London. Yeah, fuck you too. It's Patrick in London. Funny things. I hear funny things out here. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Beautiful freak, beautiful freak, that is why I love you. Beautiful freak, beautiful freak. Yeah.